Amen. Well, good evening, LCM. Good evening. It's always difficult to be away from this Bible study like last week. That, that was tough. The first reason that it's difficult is that these evenings are genuinely cherished to me. I, I, I live for them. The second reason is that the studies will undoubtedly provide a footing for future generations in the One Association to begin their own stand on. We really do view these teachings as critical to our future. However, when I listened to the recording of Ezra 4 in the truck on the way home, it became quite obvious that the meeting excelled in excellence even in my absence. Perhaps even because of my absence. Well, before you boo, before you boo, the truth is, is that is the goal of all real discipleship. And Luke 640 says it so plainly that it's it's worth quoting again. A student is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. Our hope in these meetings is to give you and future generations a foundational footing to stand upon. You will end up correcting our errors. You will further our revelations so that the work of God grows well beyond where we left it and continues into your lifetime. These meetings are intended to give you a foundation to begin the great work of God in your life and the teams that you've established. That's what we're aiming at. They will not solve every problem. They may even create a few that will be your job to solve. But the point is, is that you'll have something to start with. That, that's why we call these meetings foundations meetings. As we get into Ezra 5 tonight, we want to tell you up front that you will be introduced to a three-month challenge that will change your life forever. You have become intimately familiar with what it looks like to face outward opposition, but there is a more insidious obstacle than that. And we will square off with this opponent this evening and then stand over its fallen form in glorious victory. Now, as we review... Keep in mind that the very names of principal men in this story is a reminder of Adonai's purpose in giving us this book we are studying tonight. So we're going to review this slide for you. Never let this slide become common to you. Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra means help. Nehemiah means Yahweh comforts. Yahweh has consoled. The comfort of God, the aid of the Lord, the name is made up of two roots. The first one to comfort, the second Yahweh. So as we get into it, we'll find that Zerubbabel's name means seed of Babylon. Probably indicating that he was born into the captivity of Babylon. Then Ezra appears as a help to God's people. Then Nehemiah appears as a comfort to God's people. It's worth noting that the Lord is never done with his people. He is looking for the heart of David in them. And he's using circumstances to create that heart. Consider how David's Psalm 86 begins and ends. So Psalm 86, verse 1, is how it begins. Hear me, Lord, and answer me. For I am poor and needy. Guard my life, for I am faithful to you. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. 
Have mercy on me, Lord, for I call to you all day long. And the end of this psalm is verse 17. Give me a sign of your goodness, that my enemies may see it and be put to shame. Pay attention to this next line. For you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. Amen. You've helped me and you've comforted me. The Lord's help and comfort is consistent, but also comes in definable waves. The depth of amplitude between these waves allows for our growth and the development of our faithfulness. You will remember that there were three waves of help and comfort in the returning of Adonai's people and the rebuilding of formerly destroyed places. Oh, and look, as promised, we have that slide for you. Thank you. Be very familiar with this, because we're going to show you every week. The blue box, though, on your screen is our area of focus tonight. We will be in the time period from about 520 to 516 B.C. You will encounter the ministry of both Haggai and Zechariah that were instrumental in restarting a work begun in the Spirit that must be completed in the Spirit. So in this next slide, you should notice once again that the blue box indicates the time period we are discussing. Then we're going to place it in its larger historical context, as illustrated by the bullet points on the right. You guys can see that. The third siege of Jerusalem that destroyed the temple occurred in 586 B.C. The Persian conquest of Babylon occurred in 539 B.C. Then Zerubbabel and his companions returned under the Edict of Cyrus somewhere around 539 or 538. The temple itself was completed in 516 B.C., which was 70 years exactly after its destruction. Zerubbabel, Haggai, and Zechariah were all working in the 23-year period between the Edict of Cyrus and the completion of the temple, which will be a part of our purview this evening. Ezra will arrive in Jerusalem in the 450s to reform the people and teach them Torah. Then, Nehemiah will arrive in Jerusalem in the 440s B.C. to rebuild the wall and the city. So the work of God began at the altar. You guys remember that from chapter 3? Yeah. yeah. Shortly after the decree of Cyrus in 539 B.C. But the tribes faced significant opposition, and the work slowed or stopped altogether. This stoppage lasted around 18 years. However, what began in the spirit was again rekindled by the spirit around the 520s B.C. So that the temple was indeed completed in 516 B.C. exactly 70 years after its destruction. So you may remember the Gentiles living in the region of Samaria. And we're going to say it like that a lot because when you hear the New Testament word Samaritan, it can really mean any one of three groups of people. So we're trying to identify this for you. These are Gentiles that happened to live where the northern tribes were displaced. Well, they asked to be included in the project of building the temple during Ezra 4. We summarized some of what you learned last week on a slide. I think Nick presented the slide last week, and it was called, But Why Can't I Be a Part? We looked at the context of the chapter and we saw that the 12 returning tribes had a command from God 
and a command from the king, a kind of co-witness that assured everybody that this work was, in fact, from God. The 12 tribes are demonstrably stirred by the Spirit of God. In fact, that phrasing occurs throughout the books of Ezra and Nehemiah and the minor prophets in general. They had participation in the altar as their first act of obedience. Everything started at the altar. And they had a clarified relationship with the Lord. It was based on exclusivity, where no other gods were involved. No golden calves, no alternate forms of worship. Well, the Gentile idolaters, they did not have a command from God. In fact, they had been there for 200 years and had never attempted it because God didn't tell them to and they weren't that serious about it. They also had no demonstrable stirring in their spirits from God. They may have had a stirring, but it was not from God. They had no participation in the altar. Look, there's only one way to enter the kingdom, and anybody that comes in another way is a thief or a robber. They also did not have a clarified and exclusive relationship with the Lord. I think you read last week that kings absolutely documents that they never stopped worshiping their other gods. So the decision of Zerubbabel, Yeshua, and the elders to exclude the Gentile idolaters... Well, it proved itself right over time. In other words, it proved to be wisdom in the very actions of the Gentiles that followed the decision. Sometimes difficult decisions have to be made. It's tough to know whether it's right or not. But your decision will bear itself out in fruit over time. This decision reminded us of Jesus' words in Matthew 7.20. He said in Matthew 7.20, Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. If the intentions of the Gentiles had been as pure as they claimed, then they would not have immediately turned and opposed the very work that they originally claimed to be in support of. Can't tell you as a pastor how many times I've seen that. Jesus made another statement in Matthew 11 that is worth reflecting on and has bearing on this. But wisdom is proved right by her actions. You know, a man is not justified by what he says alone. That's a misreading of Romans 10. James makes it clear that it's what he says and what he does. It became clear to me, became clear to us, that one of the reasons that Ezra 4 is organized in such a unique fashion with topically arranged but non-chronological sequences in it is to emphasize two things. One is a theological point that no amount of opposition should be able to defeat the work of God. The second is that the unique organization of the chapter emphasizes the wisdom of Zerubbabel and the other leaders' decision to exclude these Gentiles. Because before Ezra is there and after Ezra is there, they continue to be the biggest obstacle externally to the work of God. So the chapter seems to be placed in a way to let you know nothing will stop the work of God and that the decision that Zerubbabel made was the right decision. It was proven out over time. So in our next slide, you will remember the unique construction of Ezra 4. 
Many of you might not have gotten it down last week, but as we rep through this, it'll become more apparent. The chapter follows a topical flow that is similar to Paul's listing of the obstacles that he overcame through the course of his ministry. He didn't face those obstacles all in one week. It was a total topical recounting of everything he had faced in his life in no chronological sequential order. So as you're looking at this slide, remember, Ezra chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, they are a continuation of the chronological account from chapter 3. They follow that chronological flow all the way from chapter 3 up to verse 5. They are chronological. When we get into verses 6 through 23... They are a parenthetical insertion. They are topically arranged. A record of events that are not in sequential order. They are in topical order. They contain historical events. And remember, they also contained future events that were included in that section. Then we got to verse 24, where the narrative picked back up from verse 5. And it was displaying the overall result of these oppositions that they faced. And then it continues the chronology from verse 5 and goes on from there. So the historical events and future events that were listed between verses 6 and 23, they all had a twofold function. Number one, they illustrated that in spite of the continual opposition, the work of God faces, it is completed anyway. Amen. And number two, they also serve to show that the decision of the leaders to exclude the Gentiles from Samaria was justified because you got to see the whole topical situation of what these Gentiles did. Yes, amen. This next slide is a brief pictorial display of the various oppositions that happened in Ezra chapter 4 that were detailed in that chapter. Look at this. Opposition happened in verse 4. That was during the reign of Cyrus. And we had opposition in verse 6 again, but that jumped all the way to the reign of Xerxes I. And we had opposition in verse 7, the next verse, but that, contextually speaking, was all the way down to Artaxerxes I. Guys, do you remember this slide? Yeah. Yes. yes. You can see that Ezra started with the opposition during the reign of Cyrus. Then he detailed continual opposition from these same people groups through the reign of Xerxes, and all the way into the reign of Artaxerxes. <coughs> Again, the point was that opposition might be able to slow God's work, but it should never defeat God's work. Amen. And also, that the original decision to exclude these Gentiles living in Samaria was indeed a very wise decision. Now we'd like to focus you on the time period that our story will take place in this evening. Look at this next slide. And the gold box, just right in the middle of all kinds of opposition. We're going to be in the time frame of Darius I, who reigned from 522 to 486 BC. The work is temporarily slowed to the point of stopping. However, what began in the spirit will indeed be completed by the Spirit of God. Amen! The reinitiation of the work and the need for it was the result of the opposition detailed in the earlier chapters. The exact reason is not given other than a long history existed of complaints by the Gentiles living in Samaria to Persian monarchs. These complaints were sometimes met by cease and desist orders. 
But after investigation, permission was always extended again because of the original order by Cyrus. That brings us to our next slide that is titled The Result of the Opposition. So you should remember in Ezra chapter 4, verse 24, where the narrative picks back up after leaving off at verse 5, where we had a lengthy parenthesis between the result of all of the opposition during Cyrus's reign was that the work on the temple was suspended until the second year of Darius, 520 B.C., some 18 years after the people had returned to the land for the purpose of rebuilding the house of God. So these cease and desist orders were worded in a particularly clever way. You may remember from our studies in Daniel that the word of a Persian monarch could not be countermanded. A decree issued by Cyrus could not be overturned by a later ruler. When it was set in stone, it was set in stone, even if they regretted the decree they made. So the monarchs that temporarily ordered stoppage left themselves room for further investigation. One such example is detailed in Nehemiah 2, which is later in history, but serves as an example of this type of practice. So you have to remember that Ezra is writing from the 450s. He's able to talk about events before where we're at and after where we're at to illustrate the kinds of things that are happening. What we're going to do now is jump forward to a time period where Nehemiah is coming, which is after Ezra arrives. But it just gives you an example of how the cease and desist orders were handled. The various ways that the temple was stopped, but brought back online again. The slide is called, Until I So Order. In his reply, the king actually strengthened the position of the Israelites by leaving open the possibility that, there might, that their work might resume later by his permission. This, of course, did happen later on under the leadership of Nehemiah. In this story, meaning in chapter 4, the king did search the archives and found that Jerusalem had been powerful at one time. What an encouragement this must have been to Ezra's original readers to recall the years of David and Solomon and to know that even a pagan king acknowledged the sovereignty of their empire centered in Jerusalem, which is something still under debate to this day. Yeah. Yeah. The king commanded that the building project stop until I so order, leaving room for something else. This was the same king who later in 444 B.C. changed this edict and allowed Nehemiah to return and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. However, the immediate result was a forced cessation of the building activity because the enemies used force to back up the legal document from the Persian king. This is a great place to ask a question. We've covered some technical things with you because we needed to and they'll be in your notes for the future. Saints, how many times in your lives has it tended to look as if the work of God has come to an end? How many times does it look like the darkness has prevailed over the light in any given situation? This is never true. And it often takes three days and then you see a world of difference. Tonight, you will be looking at a three-month challenge that if you take seriously, will change your life. It's not the slim, fast, and sexy challenge. We're not working on losing weight. We will be working on something that will build the work of God in your life. Amen. 
Tonight, you're going to come face to face with a more insidious opponent than any form of external opposition. Tonight, you will reacquaint with your beginnings in the spirit and the necessity of finishing as empowered by that very same spirit. Amen. We're going to pray together. Then we're going to read the chapter. In fact, Miss Jennifer will be back on reading duty tonight. And then we're going to go through it line by line. We're going to do justice to the historical context, but we're also going to take aim at where we're at as a church body and believe that the recording will be useful for generations in the future. Amen. So which anointed man is going to stand and pray? Mighty God, we thank you for what you're doing in this house. Lord, we thank you that you are leading us along, Father, that you have given us your name, Lord, that we are marked by you. God, that you have given us your word and you are leading us by your spirit. God, we come before you as one body. You provide to do your work, Lord. God, we thank you for this family that you've placed us in. And we thank you for the insight and the wisdom and understanding that you are pouring out upon us. Lord, we are those Gentiles that choose to walk with you and to walk with your people, God. We want to join in the work. We want to partner with what you are doing, God. Will you continue to pour out your spirit and empower us to complete every task that you have given us, God. We love you, and we thank you for this evening, Lord. We commit ourselves to paying attention to every word that comes forth in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Well, Miss Jen, can you help us out? Yes. Now Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet, a descendant of Ido, prophesied to the Jews in Judea, Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of, God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, son of Jehozadak, set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, helping them. At that time, Tataneah, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Shethar Bozani and their associates went to them and asked, Who authorized you to rebuild this temple and to restore the structure? The structure? They also asked, what are the names of the men constructing this building? But the eye of their God was watching over the elders of the Jews, and they were not stopped until a report could go to Darius and his written reply be received. This is a copy of the letter that Tatanai, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Shethar of Bozani, and their associates of the officials of Trans-Euphrates sent to King Darius. The report they sent him reads as follows. To King Darius, cordial greetings. The king should know that we went to the district of Judah, to the temple of the great God. The people are building it with large stones and placing the timbers in the walls. The work is being carried on with diligence and is making rapid progress under their direction. We question the elders and ask them, who authorized you to rebuild this temple and restore this structure? We also asked them their names so that we could write down the names of their leaders for your information. This is the answer they gave us. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. Yes. And we are rebuilding this temple that was built many years ago. One that a great king of Israel built and finished. But because our fathers angered the God of heaven... He handed them over to Nebuchadnezzar, the Chaldean, king of Babylon, who destroyed this temple and deported the people to Babylon. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, King Cyrus issued a decree to rebuild this house of God. 
He even removed from the temple of Babylon the gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem and brought to the temple in Babylon. Then King Cyrus gave them to a man named Sheshbazar, who he had appointed governor, and he told him, told him, Take these articles and go and deposit them in the temple in Jerusalem and rebuild the house of God on its site. So this Sheshbazar came in and laid the foundations of the house of God in Jerusalem. From that day to the present, it has been under construction, but it is not finished, yet finished. Now if it pleases the king, let a search be made in the royal archives of, of Babylon to see if a king Cyrus did in fact issue a decree to rebuild this house of God in Jerusalem. Then let the king send us his decision in this matter. <coughs> All right, guys, this is going to be an exciting chapter tonight. Amen. Now, many of you read this chapter throughout this week, and you're probably looking at the chapter and thinking, what are we going to dig into in this Aramaic letter that was sent back and forth? I'm going to tell you tonight that tonight's going to be exciting because it's one of the richest times in biblical history in this time period right now. We're going to discover some deep things into the text. We're going to see that the people of God were engaged in a three-month challenge, and it produced something. And it's also going to show us that God is leading us into a three-month challenge that is going to produce something in this house. So why don't we get started so we can dig in? Linton, let's get into verse 1. Now Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet, a descendant of Edo, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, So you already know from our introduction that we have jumped forward in time by about a couple decades at this point. Now during this interval, the work of God had slowed or stopped, but that is not the end of the story. Amen. Not by any means. We want to start by drawing your attention to the phrase, the God of Israel who was over them. Because this language... In the English and the Hebrew, it's reminiscent of the Exodus, and it's meant to invoke Sinai imagery to the original reader. This comes from Exodus 19, verse 16. On the mountain of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. So what you're seeing is, at the nation's theophany, the presence of God was over them in the form of a cloud. They also had the prophet, Moses, leading and directing them through God's word. The imagery that we're reading about is the same at the restarting of the temple building project. The text says the God of Israel who was over or upon them, he is present and so are his prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. You seeing the similarities? Let's read verse 2 and then we're going to take a deeper look at the scene. Jeshua, son of Jehoshadak, sent to the work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God who were with them helped them. Notice this phrase here. The prophets of God were with them, 
helping them. Zerubbabel is a Davidic ruler, and Jeshua is the high priest, and yet the work required both Haggai and Zechariah to help these men out. This reminded us of Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 3. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. In the historical setting of Ezra and Nehemiah, it was necessary to have more than one leader. Yeah, that's right, we said it. It was necessary to have more than one leader. Zerubbabel was the Davidic ruler, and Jeshua was the high priest. They were working two by two. Additionally, they were aided by the prophets who also were working two by two. The body of Messiah, that is the temple collectively, also must be constructed by covenant teams that each do their part as they work with one purpose. Amen. Reminded that, listen to Ephesians 4, picking up in verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain, attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every kind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way. Say every way. Every way. Every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint, with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow, so that it builds itself up in love. Verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. Perhaps Paul was reflecting on the way that Zerubbabel's temple was constructed. Remember, it was the Gentiles living in Samaria that wanted to be part of the work at first and then wanted to stop the work when they did not get the level of participation that they desired. Church, it is Gentile thinking to believe that you can do it alone without the God-ordained team. It's a good word. It is Gentile thinking to believe that it is okay to burn down the work if you don't like your level of participation. It is Gentile thinking to harm the work that you once supported simply because you cannot figure out how to walk in unity with the other builders. So the construction of God's house has many members that all form one body with one purpose, and anything less than this kind of unity is futile Gentile thinking. By the way, there's only one way to get this kind of unity. You guys want to know what it is? Oh, yeah. yeah. 
You have to be stirred by the Spirit of God. You have to respond to a command within the Word that is more than human desire. You have to start with what? With an altar. Your sacrifices have to be both morning and evening. They need to be perpetual and they need to be exclusive. And you cannot have any other priority. So we learn these things from Ezra chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4. And you would do well as a church, as a body of believers, to go back and revisit them so they are in the very depths of your soul. The role of the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, will serve to remind the community of these truths. We'd like to take two more examples from Paul's writings prior to continuing. The first is going to be from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Verse 12, the body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts. And though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free. And we were all given the one spirit to drink. Now the body is not made up of one part, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body. It would not, for that reason, cease to be a part of the body. Apparently Paul doesn't care what you identify as. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body. It would not, for that reason, cease to be a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. Thanks, this truth is vividly displayed in Ezra and Nehemiah. Zerubbabel and Jeshua, they desperately needed each other, and they also needed the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. The nation was made up of many parts that all had one singular purpose, namely to build the temple of God on earth as it is in heaven. We doubt seriously that Haggai and Zechariah were chiseling stones. And if they were, that was not their major contribution. So they needed the other members of the body to do that work. We doubt seriously that Zerubbabel and Jeshua were hewing timbers. So they needed the rest of the body to be able to complete the vision. And of course, each of the other members needed these leaders to mature to be able to complete the project that they were set upon. Do y'all see it on the national level? Do you hear Paul applying it to the local church community? It's equally true in your home. 1 Corinthians 11.11 In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. The truth that exists in the nation of Israel, which declares boldly that every member is essential to the overall work of God, is also true in the church. Every member (laughs) forms one body. It is also equally true in your homes. A called and anointed husband still needs his wife because, biblically speaking, they are one body. 
So you can't separate. That's his ministry. I just take care of these things. You are one unit that must work in unity or you're a building according to a pattern that God cannot bless. The reverse is equally true. It is not possible for a wife to say, I don't need my husband. Or a husband and wife to say, we do not need our children. The fact is, if you're <coughs> responsible for even one person, a nine-month-old child, then in God's design, it takes a leadership team of two to properly administrate the one nine-month-old child. It is Gentile thinking to believe that you can or should attempt to do it by yourself. It is Gentile thinking to believe that if you don't participate in the same way or on the same level that you would like to, that you should then oppose the project that you were once for. Again, I could spend all day talking about those that were once for this ministry, once for the one association, but were denied the glory and esteem that they desired and are now completely dedicated to the destruction of this ministry and the one association. That is Gentile thinking. We're going to pick up in verse 3 and start to drive home some things that will be fun to learn, if not painful. Fun and painful. Amen. <laughs> Praise the Lord. At that time, Tat and I, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Shethar Bozanai and their associates went to them and asked, Who authorized you to rebuild this temple and restore this structure? They also asked, What are the names of the men constructing this building? But the eye of their God was watching over the elders of the Jews. And they were not stopping until a report could go to Darius and his written reply be received. So we have now encountered the third phrase that we want to draw your attention to in order to complete a picture. It's found in verse 5. The phrase is, the eye of their God was watching over the elders. You see, neither Zerubbabel nor Jeshua were enough. Yeah. The addition of Haggai and Zechariah were not enough. It says the eye of God was on the elders. Can you see and appreciate the level at which their unity as a team is essential to the work? Take a look at this slide for a larger Sinai picture. We see in verse 1 that Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet, a descendant of Edo, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. So you see the prophets. In verse 2, Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, son of Jozadak, set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, helping them. Then in verse 5 we see, But the eye of their God was watching over the elders of the Jews. So much like the formation of the nation at Sinai, This is all being done under the name and function of the God of Israel who is envisioned over the work. Who orchestrated the work? God. Who is over the work? God. Just like the cloud at Sinai is hovering over the people in the formation of the nation, Ezra is presenting God is hovering over the unity of this group for the work to re-begin. Added to that, much like Sinai, the prophets of God are helping them in the vision of the work. 
who just aided like, the people at Sinai understand what God's presence was doing. It was a prophet named Moses. Further on, much like Sinai, the eye of God is on the family heads to bring this about. At Sinai, God was hovering over. Moses was on the mountain meeting with him, and then he was speaking with the elders who spoke to the people. We have the same imagery here, and God is over all of the process. It's actually a picture of shalom, where all is in all. God's presence is directing the unity of the people, and they need each other. So now that you guys are getting it, you're getting a revelation about this, this knowledge, it raises a very important question. Why in the world did the work stop then? What happened? Why did it come to a halt? And why were the prophets necessary to get this thing restarted? Well, Zerubbabel was fallible. Even though he was a Davidic ruler, he was a man and he was fallible. What about Jeshua? He was fallible. Even though he was the high priest, he was a man and he was fallible. What about the elders, though? No, they were fallible, too. Even though they were anointed family heads. We've got a series of slides to illustrate these things to you and answer the question. The first one is entitled, Zerubbabel Had to Be Corrected. This comes from the very beginning of the minor prophet Haggai in chapter 1, verse 1. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. It's not time to do this yet. Hey, who is one of those people? Who's the word directed to? Zerubbabel. (laughs) Zerubbabel was charged with the rebuilding of the temple. And yet the work itself stalled under his watch, under his administration. That's why this is happening. It actually took the prophet Haggai to rebuke him to his face and to rebuke also the rest of the nation with him to get the work restarted. So let's look at Joshua, or Jeshua, because he had to be cleansed. This is from Zechariah 3, 1 through 5. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord, who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the, from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes. As he stood before the angel, wow. the angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Woo. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin. Taken away what? Your, your sin. sin. And what do clothes represent in the Bible? The deeds that were ordained for you to do. Something had made him filthy. He needed a change of clothes. He needed his sin removed. Satan is not wrong in his assessment of Joshua. He's wrong in God's determination for what he's going to do for Jerusalem anyway. Yeah, Yeah, let's continue on. It says, and I will put rich 
garments on you. Then I said, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. Joshua was the high priest and was responsible for the administration of the temple sacrifices and national feast of the Lord. Joshua had soiled his priestly duties and needed correction and rebuke by the prophet Zechariah to restart the temple project. So guys, are you catching this? We had a wonderful start. Do you guys remember Ezra 3? We had a foundation laid that began with morning and evening sacrifices. Zerubbabel, our great Davidic leader. The rebuke is addressed to him because the attitude of the people, it's not yet time, is stemming from him, the Davidic leader that is responsible for the community. Then Jeshua, the high priest, the one who's supposed to be making intercession on that altar, making sacrifices for the state of the people, he himself is clothed in sin. This is God's team. And they have sin that is present that has brought this halt about. But they're not all of God's team. We have another slide that you've seen before, but we're going to put it in a different context for you. This is the sin of the elders. Now the priests and Levites and the elder part of the families, these are the leading heads of all of the families, recollecting themselves, recollecting <coughs> with themselves how much greater and more sumptuous the old temple had been, seeing that now made how much inferior it was on account of their poverty. Where do you think the idea stems from? It's not yet time. We're too poor. Me, I don't have enough to do it. It is stemming from the family heads, the elders. Seeing it, that now made how much inferior it was on account of their poverty to that which had been built of old. Considered with themselves, taking counsel with themselves, how much more their happy state was sunk below what it had been of old, as well as their temple. Hereupon they were disconsolate and not able to contain their grief and proceeded so far as to lament, or you could say grumble, and shed tears on these accounts. But the people in general were contented with their present condition, and because they were allowed to build them a temple, they desired no more, and neither regarded nor remembered, nor indeed all tormented themselves with the comparison of that and the former temple as if it were there below their expectations. But the wailing of the old men and of the priests on account of the deficiency of the temple in their opinion, if compared with that which had been demolished, overcame the sounds of the trumpets and the rejoicing of the people. Are you getting an idea of how the work stopped? They felt like they were deficient for the task and it was insufficient as a temple. The elders of the people were often seen weeping during the very moments that God commanded rejoicing. These actions were thoroughly repudiated in the teachings of both Ezra and in Nehemiah. Remember all of these leaders that were working under the name of the God of Israel who was over them, just like at Sinai, his presence is over them. Remember all of these leaders. They were helped by the prophets of God who were with them. Now remember, the eye of the God of Israel was upon these men. Now ask yourselves, who among you is capable of carrying out your calling independently of the rest of the body? 
A Davidic leader, a high priest, leading men of Israel who were elders. Who among you is capable of walking without veering into error with each of those things where God is over them? We just described this, but we're going to wrestle through it for a moment. The Davidic ruler, the one who descended from David, the priestly, princely warrior, the poet of Israel. He needed his team so that he could finish rightly. The high priest needed his team so that he could finish rightly. The elders, they needed the team or they would have been hopelessly lost in error back in chapter 3. All of these things are true. Even though Adonai was over them the whole time. Even though Adonai was helping them the whole time. Even though Adonai's eye was upon them. We're going to examine the ministry of the prophets very soon together. But before we do that, we want you to know that even the prophets themselves need every other member of the body because sometimes prophets make mistakes too and nobody can do this alone. Is that shocking to you? The prophets make mistakes. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all of his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a palace of cedar, while the ark of God remains in the tent. Seems very noble. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. That night, somebody say that night. That night. That night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, Go tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. If I could put an emphasis on it, I would say what the Lord actually says instead of what I presumed he would say. <laughs> this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this very day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent is my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Look, saints, clearly the prophet Nathan made a serious mistake in his initial response to David. The Lord corrected his error that night. I can show you similar mistakes in the ministry of Agabus. His prophecies were correct, but the conclusions that he drew from his prophecies were not always right. Our point in illustrating this is put quite simply by a first century rabbi named Shaul. Every Baptist kid learns this when and clings to it. It's Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Let us be clear. You and I, we need each other. Charlie, Eric, Boj, and John, we are fallible men. And we will need correction many times throughout our lifetime. Matt, Wade, Nick, Mm -hmm. Judah, Peyton, they are all fallible men. And will need correction many times throughout their lifetime. Now if these things are true of leaders like Zerubbabel, In Jeshua, son of Jehozadak, and these things are true of Charlie and Bosch and Aaron. How much more so are they true of you? 
Let us not be like the Gentiles who would burn down the very work of God that they once claimed to support simply when you come to the realization that we all need correction and repentance frequently. This body and every genuine work of God is completely dependent on every member working with all diligence to achieve the same purpose. This can only be done by visiting the altar in the morning, visiting the altar in the evening, the altar being a perpetual part of your life, or every one of us will get off track and become disunified, and the work of God will come to a halt until a generation rises to do it. Before we get into the ministry of the prophets, we would like to get a few more verses in and highlight some astounding statements as well as some archaeological finds. So let's pick up in verse 6. There is a copy of the letter that Tatanai, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Shethar Bozanai, and their associates, the officials of Trans-Euphrates, sent to King Darius. The report they sent him reads, him read as follows. To King Darius, cordial greetings. Cordial greetings. The king should know that we went to the district of Judah, to the temple of the great God. The people are building it with large stones and placing timbers in the walls. The work is being carried on with diligence and is making rapid progress under their direction. So what we're learning is that it's pretty amazing to see the way in which the Bible is corroborated through archaeological finds. We're going to look at this slide from the United Bible Societies. We're going to talk about the... Tatanai document. So the time marker at the same time means during the time of the rebuilding. At that very time, the Persian officials of the province came to check what authority the Jews had to build the temple. A Babylonian document indicates that Tatanai was newly appointed as governor of the province beyond the river, that's the Euphrates, in the time of King Darius and was an assistant to the satrap for Babylon and the province beyond the river. The Aramaic word used here for governor is always used for the Persian governors in Ezra and occasionally used for the Jewish governors (coughs) of Judah and Jerusalem. So clearly, according to this document, this Babylonian document that was found, Tatanai was a real historical figure if you needed a Babylonian document. Persian document. Persian. According, clearly, he was a real historical figure, and documents from that time period exist today bearing his name. Next, notice that verse 8 contains some astounding confirmations from a Gentile source, even though the source is in opposition to the building project. In verse 8, Tatanai refers to the temple as the temple of the great God. Come on, take that in for a minute. The Babylonian... Persian Persian. document found in Babylonia records that Tatanai, the word of God records it too, says the great God. The temple of the great God. Talk about the God of Israel's ability to distinguish himself as the most high God. In this document, Tatanai affirms that large stones and timbers are being used. Now think of that in a time frame when secular people are teaching that the temple was never built and never sat on the temple mount. But this guy knew. 
Tatanai affirms also <coughs> that the work is being carried on with diligence. Wow. He also affirms that rapid progress is occurring. Yeah. So in a day, like our day, when scholars often question the existence of David, Solomon, or even the temple itself, it often goes unnoticed how many times verifiable historical details are corroborated in the Bible by secular documents. Yeah. So in our next slide, we actually have a perfectly preserved <laughs> loaf of bread for you. <laughs> well, that's actually what the Tatanai document looks like today. Preserved. And what they found on the document is amazing. Something happened, though, that caused this work to slow or stop. Then the work ramped up again and was being carried on with diligence, and it was making rapid progress. So how in the world did this happen? It happened through the ministry of the prophets on the team that was going after the work together. Do y'all want to learn about that? Yes. Okay, so to unpack this, we're going to go to the book of Haggai. You're going to want to be in Haggai 1, and we're going to pick up in verse 3. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your pedal houses? While this house remains a ruin? Good question. Now this is what the Lord Almighty said. Give careful thought to your ways. Wait, what did he say, Peyton? Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but you are not warm. You earn wages, but only to put them in a purse with holes in it. Saints, in the historical context of Ezra Nehemiah, mission drift occurred. Can you say mission drift? Mission drift. They began in the spirit and with great zeal, but after sustained opposition, their objectives were diverted slowly over time. This is one of the greatest opponents that you will ever face. It is not the external opposition, but rather the internal opposition that is the most dangerous. Hey, say mid-drift. Mid-drift. That's bad. Yeah. Mission drift. That's worse. Yeah. These believers started well, but are in danger of not finishing well. Do you want to finish well, church? Yes! Somewhere along the way, their own homes and priorities encroached on the only true priority that they were given uh -oh. to build a temple on earth. Come on. Tell me that after you get a job, after you get a wife or a child that you prayed for, that you haven't struggled with mission drift. Uh, that's true. Think about the things that you prayed the hardest for, and God gave it to you in his kindness and in his sovereignty. But as you say here today, maybe you've experienced a little mission drift. Can you honestly say that the idolatry of building your own life is in no way affecting accomplishing the building of God's work? Thanks. It often takes a prophetic event for us to see this subtle opponent and the destructive power that it wields in the life of a believer. Whether it's a prophecy or a prophetic insight and somebody confronting you head on with it. We're often victims of our own blessings. They compete with the zeal 
that once accompanied our desire to complete the work of God. We're going to visit Deuteronomy 6 together in verse 10. It says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large, flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Now when the tribes were fresh out of captivity, man, I mean, not the Egyptian captivity, but the Babylonian captivity. Fresh out. They were eager to complete the temple. Got right to work despite their fear. But after 20 years had passed, they were distracted with all that God had given them. They were satisfied with less than the full completion of the task, saying, I'll get to it later as I focus on what God is giving me now. Honestly, this is something that everybody in this room should and could contemplate deeply. Should you really be satisfied without having completed your mandate? No. The number of times that I've seen somebody earnestly seek God, get a wife, and then stop earnestly seeking God or earnestly seek the Lord until they were in ministry and then they were in ministry, the ministry itself became an idolatrous relic in their life and everything was about the ministry and somehow or another the Lord's priority moved to the back of their life is pretty high. So we're going to go back to a very basic scripture that you all will know right off the top of your head but need to work at reapplying in your life. Matthew 6.31 So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. When you engage with the phrase, seek first, that does not mean that you seek him once at the first. (laughs) That you seek him once at the beginning. It means that you always place the kingdom priority as first and foremost above the clothing on your body, above the food in your mouth, above the provision that keeps your ministry going. It means simply that the kingdom priority remains first in your life. Christian, if we engage with that statement, you will all find yourselves guilty. And if you do not find yourself guilty, it is not because you are more righteous than us, it's because you're obtuse. If we don't do this, then the idolatry of building our own lives slowly brings the work of God to a standstill. Is there stagnancy in your progress? Precisely because your priorities are robbing from God's priorities? Your children's dental appointments have become more important than God's appointment for you that day? Remember, Gentiles living in Samaria were excluded from partnership in building the temple precisely because the Lord was not their only priority. 
Now, you are Gentiles included in the work of the temple precisely because you have pledged that the work of God is your only priority. If we take back that original commitment, then we have become worthless to the work of God. And no one thinks that they're doing it, and everybody does it. This is why the ministry of the prophets are so important. They point to the idols in your life that you do not see. They point to the things that you absolve yourself of, but that God holds you accountable for. Listen to this warning from Hebrews 2, verse 1. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. You notice this is not talking about a sudden falling away. It's talking about a slow drifting away. And that's scary when you consider the fact that even the Davidic ruler had experienced mission drift. That slow drifting away. Even the high priest who had an altar, he experienced the slow mission drift. The elders themselves experienced mission drift. Man, you think the title would eliminate all of those possibilities, but it doesn't. No, it doesn't. If we do not pay more careful attention to the prophetic warning of Hebrews, do you really think that we will not drift away from God's priority? How many times have we heard this scripture? And yet we're still tempted to drift away. And we forget to pay more careful attention. Why do so many ministries start with a pure devotion to the Lord and want to accomplish something for God and end up talking about the size of their sound systems, their jets in the pastor's parking place? This is why. They think that they need it to accomplish God's will. And when they get it, they stop accomplishing God's will. Church, we have to wake up to this one. Because while I could pick on Jesse Duplantis and Kenneth Copeland... It's true of everybody in this room. The more God blesses you, the more danger you are in of exalting those blessings over the original devotion that acquired the the blessings. It happens to us all. And this is a wake-up call. When you first got born again, how much did you care about bass fishing? When you first got born again, how much did you care about DVRing the latest show? When you first got born again... Nothing mattered except the next thing that God said. Now, how many things matter to you right alongside what you know God has already said? That is mission drift. And it is a much bigger obstacle than external obstacles. God will help you overcome every external obstacle. But mission drift is something that you must face yourself. And it is prevalent even in a body like this one. We're examining our own lives because we know that it's prevalent in us. I need to do this, and the Lord has said it, but I also need to do these things. No! Seek first the kingdom. The first thing that you do is what he has told you. Every other thing falls in the shadow of that one statement. And if we lose it, we lose it all. The sad thing that God is revealing that is present here is that it is often the very blessings that Adonai has given us that cause us to be less devoted to what he has assigned us to do. 
He actually gave us those things to be more devoted. Your home, your family, and the job were given to you as an aid in accomplishing his will, not as an excuse to avoid accomplishing his will every day, morning, and evening. All right, so y'all are paying attention now. You're squirming, and that's good. We squirmed with this all day. This is what prophetic word does. Contrary to popular belief, they don't just float around on Facebook and tell you that you're wonderful. They perfect you. They take you in this pathway where you realize that course corrections have to be made. And there's no one in this room that does not need to correct their course. I promise you that. We're not going to move on just yet. We're going to go to Hebrews 6. We're going to start reading in verse 9. And we are going to drill down into this because this is a word that we need tonight. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we're confident of better things in your case. (laughs) Things that accompany salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. Now up to this point in verse 10 and getting into verse 11, I bet they're patting themselves on the back a little bit. Yep. Man, we've been doing some good stuff. Our leaders are confident over it. We've got some good leaders. We've been supporting the saints, man. We're good. We're blessed. Look how God's blessed our ministry. Verse 11. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what is promised. So picture this for a moment. What we're talking about is Zerubbabel, Jeshua, the elders becoming lazy in regards to building the physical temple on earth. And we're comparing that to what we're building here. (coughs) Many times, guys, what we're building is more spiritually focused and often unseen. What we're building is we're sowing into individuals. We're not actually building a very physical temple right now. So how much more is this something that is sneaky? That sneaks up on each one of us because we don't have something in front of us that says, look, we've got 30% of this altar bill and we need 70% more. No, it's so much easier to slowly but surely walk away, slowly but surely get lax and lazy in this spiritual work that God has put on our shoulders to build together. But the key to all of this... Is showing the same diligence that you showed at first to the very end. If that's not convincing you, then if if that's not convincing, then you have not thought very seriously about this subject yet. But I can see it in your eyes tonight, and you're right in line, right on board with what we're saying. It's worth wrestling with, isn't it? Yeah, let me give you an example or two to wrestle with before... Peyton picks up in Colossians. Think back right now to that dramatic moment when you first felt your burden alleviated. Do you have it in your mind? If you don't have that in your mind, go back and revisit the Remember series because you may not be born again. That first moment when you were dramatically transformed, 
How important was accomplishing the work of God to you in the very next hour? How accomplished did you feel? Probably not very. Now contrast that with where you sit today. Do you comfort yourself with all that you've already done for the Lord? Do you comfort yourself with the thoughts of your many priorities and you'll get to these other things? If you sit here right now and your diligence does not look like it did the first hour that you were born again, then you have no surety of eternal life. That is literally what Hebrews says. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. It is not sure if you have become lazy regarding the things of God. Now, if I were a mean old elder, I would start calling teenagers' names in this room that I watched have experiences with the Lord, and it did not last two weeks with the same level of diligence. If I were a really mean old elder, I would start calling you adults' names in this room. This is a prophetic word to us to wake us up. Your children, your job, your house, your possessions exist for one purpose, to aid you in accomplishing the will of God, never to become an excuse to keep you from doing the will of God today, not tomorrow, today. Because you say tomorrow and you will wake up every day and it will still be tomorrow. How long can we get away with putting off the things that God has told us to do and blame the possessions that he has given us for the reason that we're not doing them? This is the situation of a Davidic ruler, of a high priest, of the elders of the 12 tribes. And it took not one but two prophets to show up in unity and stand fast for months to turn the nation around. But we can turn this around and we can do it tonight. Yeah. Yeah. So let's go to Colossians. Colossians 1, picking up in verse 21. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds... He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Man, I love that it says faith, stable, steadfast, not shifting. Just to build on what Elder Eric is saying, I don't want to leave my relationship with the Lord up to a coin toss when I wake up in the morning. What I mean is, how am I with the Lord? Let's see how the coin comes back down. But when we are diligent in walking this out every day, stable and steadfast, then we have the surety because we have demonstrable steps that we are doing more than we did when we first met Christ. Every time these kinds of admonitions occur in the scripture, they are usually accompanied by a reminder of our initial deliverance. This is because once a man experiences deliverance, he often forgets his responsibility. Having been alleviated of the feelings of condemnation that resulted from his lost state. 
He then alleviates himself of the newly acquired responsibilities to completely and totally give his daily actions over to the completion of the Lord's mandate. We're going to keep moving in the book of Colossians to chapter 4. Did anybody in the room say that you've been blessed? Yes. yes. I can tell you that I have been personally blessed by the Lord. Verse 16 says, after this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. This letter starts out with Paul affirming that this is a believing, faithful community and expressing the great need that they have to reach full maturity. They're passing these revelations between one another because they are designed to spur one another on yeah. towards the work of the Lord. 17 says, tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the ministry you have received in the Lord. As these are two churches that are clearly blessed by God, that are truly on fire, that are filled with faithful men. And yet the stark warning still comes from Paul's mouth. See to it that you complete the ministry. And he named the man personally. How many of us have begun well? How many have begun well that you have known? Let's just take it off you for a moment so it's easier for you to interact with. Like I've been here a long time. I've got a list of names that are just kind of getting deleted on the recycle bin as the years go by. It's extensive. That does not matter at all if you do not finish well. See, what we're fighting for right now is the completion of the work that Christ has started inside of you. We would not be reading about Ezra and Nehemiah if they did not repent and complete the work. They would be deleted. It would be brought back up into memory on the day of judgment, but it would not be in the writings for your instruction on how to live out a godly life and the strength that Christ provides. If our story is to end differently than men like Demas, like Philitus, like men like Dyer, Duff, Diotrephes, we have to have a change that is in the middle of our walk. We're not talking about the day that you were born again. That was genuine as could be. It is the revival of the things of old so that we see to it with a demonstrable change that says, we will finish the work in this house. To quote an older elder that was entirely loving and known for it, but his writings come off as a little gruff. 1 John 2.28 And now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who believes what is right... Everyone who does what is right has been born of him. When God commissions something, quite simply, he expects it to be brought to completion with faithful actions and deeds. If we do not do this, then we will be very much ashamed at his coming. The goal of the prophetic intervention is that this body of believers is able to stand unashamed at the glorious king's appearing. We want to be in the position of having done all, having completed all, and having given our all for Christ. This can only be done by a daily examination of our efforts, and that will always bring daily repentance that brings us back on track 
and away from mission drift that is so prevalent in each of our hearts. Revelation 2.26 also speaks to this. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, oh, yeah. I will give authority over the nations. Man, we must treat the faithful completion of our tasks as training to rule the nations. Amen. If we can't do his will to the end, if we can't finish the task he's given us now, daily, how are we going to rule the nations, which God has said we will already do, if we just stand and finish the task? Half a job is a total failure. Giving up, stalling is failure if we don't repent and go on with finishing the task to the end. Amen. Completion of the work is the only option Amen. in God's Amen. eyes. Amen. And that's why these prophets are showing up to Israel. Come on, listen to John 4, 34. This is Jesus speaking. My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Yes. Guys, finishing the work is food. Yeah. Finishing it. Not beginning it. As last week's sermon pointed out, Jesus was without sin, but still had to complete the work of the Father. He was perfected through the process. This ought to have a profound impact on you, since you are demonstrably not sinless. Praise God. Let's keep going. Hebrews 3, 14 and 15. We have come to share in Christ... If indeed we hold to uh, hold our original conviction firmly to the very end, as has just been said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. So Israel, Israel came out of Egypt very well, yeah. but stalled in the desert. What does your calling look like with that in mind? The rebellion and idolatry of self-set priorities is a very subtle thing. We often believe that we are doing just fine while we are drifting away from the priorities of God. Prophets appear to point out our sinful mission drift and bring us back on track. This is what Haggai did, and that is what we should all invite into our lives. Do you want that? Yes. We have to have it. Parents, you might rethink the way that you affirm your children that they're doing just fine in the Lord. You might want to affirm them that they're doing just fine in the Lord because you believe they are because you believe you are. To be doing fine in the Lord means that you have the same diligence now that you had on the day that you were born again and can see rapid and diligent progress in achieving your life's objectives for the Lord. I'm very proud that you know what your mezuzah is, but that's worthless if you're not doing it daily. Oh, honey, the Lord loves you. You're doing great. The Lord does indeed love your little honey. But if she is not doing great, you would do better to be a prophet in her life than some kind of pillow puff pansy pastor. It would be much better to be offended with the confrontation and the result be hard, faithful work than it is to comfort somebody who is in fact drifting from the mission. We think we don't do that in here, but your lives say otherwise. Now, 
We're going to move on from this point, having believed that with the 47 scriptures we used, we made a dent. We're, we, we might be laboring under a false impression with that, but we did give it our best. We want you to see how these men then responded to this prophetic word. Because my fear is that you'll spend all night crying in your Wheaties, and that does not honor God at all. Where we left off in Haggai chapter 1 was verse 6. Picking up in verse 12 gives you their response. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Josedach, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai. Amen. Because the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Hallelujah. Think this is what real repentance looks like. The prophetic message should not be met with excuses, extenuating circumstances, or the execution of the prophet himself. Amen. Amen. It should be met with an immediate about face. Yep. It should be met with a new, deepened fear and reverence for completing the work of God on earth. Christians have a bad habit of wanting to sit in despair and weeping when they realize that mission drift has occurred. No. That only serves to delay the rebuilding even further, making it worse. And it gives the enemy two rounds of victory instead of only one. No, the right response, church, the right response is to show your repentance by beginning to rebuild immediately. Amen. That's a good word. Haggai won. (laughs) I've always said Haggai. The, The name is actually Haggai. But you'll forgive me. One thirteen. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. Come on. You ready for it? They came. Uh And began the work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God. On the 24th day of the sixth month, the people did not delay the rebuilding by wallowing in their own self-indulgent despair over their condition. You want me to say that one again? It is self-indulgent to sit around and wallow in despair. He told me I'm not joyful. That makes me so sad. I'm going to punish myself for a while. Or just be joyful. Instead, they trusted the Lord. They trusted him to transform their condition, and they showed their trust in him by beginning immediately. This is so instructive for us today. The nature of our God is clearly displayed in passages like Isaiah 42. I'm going to read it to you because I love it. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. You're damaged? You found out you're flawed? 
He knew you were flawed ahead of time. He won't snap you off. Your fire is dwindling. He knew that would happen ahead of time. He will not snuff you out. In faithfulness, he will bring forth Zedekah, justice, right action. If Adonai was looking to kill you, church, because of your mission drift, you would be dead many times over by now. He doesn't want to kill you. He wants to transform you. The great lie of the 21st century is that all of the transformation you get is at the conversion. No, it's an eyedropper. Every day thereafter, you're reacquainting with your mission. You're begging for more transformation. And he gives you the bread that his son is asking for. If these words have stricken your heart, then you are a smoldering wick. And he will not snuff you out. The point of sharing these things is not to condemn, it's to correct. It's not just a rebuke. It's beginning the rebuilding again. You can pick up the same stirred up zeal that you had on day one and you can do it right now. He will stir you to cause you to be able to complete what you started with more diligence than you ever started with. You just can't excuse your behavior. And you can't wallow in the recognition of your behavior. Instead, you face it and then say, help me, Daddy, I'm in need. And he will do it. He did it for them, and he'll do it for you. Amen. With that note, listen to Psalm 51, verse 15 through 17. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. If your heart is broken, then you will not be despised by the Lord. The only proper response is to show faith in that aspect of our great God's character and then immediately get to work. When you begin the work, you are showing faith in who God is. When you grovel over your condition, you are self-indulgent and only showing that you can see what's in your life presently. Waste no time groveling in despair. Stand in faith and rebuild. Stand on the character of God and who He is. He will restir your spirit. This honors the Lord and it completes the work that much faster. We don't have to wait anymore. So Nick is going to pick up in Haggai 2. Tell me, are we telling you something that you need to hear? Yes. Because the strongest among you still tend towards self-indulgent groveling. Despair for weeks after a correction. You're not mad that you got a correction. You're not mad at the person who gave you a correction. You've grown beyond that. You're mad at yourself for weeks after the correction. And you are just wasting more time. All we have to do is believe that the same God who saved us is saving us still. Ask for his help and rekindle the fire. Haggai chapter 2 starting in verse 1 helps us to continue to wrestle with exactly what Elder Eric just said and to gain victory over it with the right kind of attitude. It says, in the second year of King Darius, on the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. 
speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Josedach, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? So engage with this for a moment. After any realization of lost time, after you realize, oh, there's been mission drift in my own life, the predictable response is that you feel like, oh, nothing's been accomplished in my life now. The Lord hasn't done anything. I haven't accomplished anything up to this point. Even what I did, it seems like nothing in my life. Isn't that the predictable response? More of you should be nodding. I've heard it from your own mouths. What's a lie? That response is a lie. You now know what you must do. That's the response. Oh my goodness, Eureka, praise the Lord God. I have a revelation of what I need to do right now. I didn't know it five seconds ago, but now I know it. Praise God. (coughs) Guys, you're further along than you were in the initial days of your deliverance. What you need is to be strong, to renew your zeal, to complete what you started so that we can all reach completion of the work together. Yeah. Hit verse 4 hard, Pastor Peyton. Let, it, let them see your zeal in you this verse. Ready for verse 4? Yes. yes! But now! But now! now. <laughs> Be strong, Zerubbabel! Come on. Declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Josedach, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. And do what? Among the seven golden lampstands. 
What do those lampstands represent, church? The churches. He walks among the churches in their presence. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. Why? Because he's been walking in their midst while they are working. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men. That you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. Again, he's saying this because he's been there, walking in their midst, although they did not see him. So when you're looking at this, the very temple that has come to a standstill is the temple that 540 some odd years later Jesus walks into. So it's not nothing. It's not inglorious. In fact, its glory would be greater than they could imagine because Jesus himself would walk into it. That's a perspective you have to have with the work that you are doing. It's a work that Jesus himself walks through. The number of times we have been in intimate worship here and the one who walks among the lampstands is examining the quality of our work is quite high and it's sobering. The church at Ephesus had to renew their original commitment to Jesus. And so must we. The foreknowledge that Jesus walked into Zerubbabel's temple and that he also walks through the midst of our work is meant to be a compulsion to work with excellence and zeal daily. How would that change your outlook each day to know that Jesus was going to walk through that day's work and evaluate the quality of what you did and did not do? Causes me to cry out for repentance. Yes. As for us, it brings us to daily repentance. It brings us to a daily reliance on the power of the Spirit that we might walk well and work well and consistently. We're going to continue in Haggai 2.18 and finish on time tonight. From this day on, from this 24th day of the ninth month. Is that a day you might want to mark on your calendar? Yep. Give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. Is there yet any seed left in the barn? Until now, the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree have not borne fruit. From this day on, I will bless you. Come on. Mark it down. Write it down. The day you make this decision, you will not be able to outspend God's blessing in your life if your expenditures are on God's work. Come on. So notice something in Haggai. Haggai showed up in the sixth month and began prophesying. This day, in Haggai chapter 2, this day is the ninth month and the 24th day. It is a marker in time for them. Three months and 24 days of careful examination and reprioritization made all the difference in eternity. Three months. Church, what would happen if we meditated on this concept from now until October when the One Association meeting is held? Do you think that you might be able to identify and correct mission drift and self-set priorities? We challenge you to take a serious look at it because it will make all the difference in your eternity as we take this three months and reflect. We want you to hear the words, well done, 
my good and faithful servant. That can only happen if you completed what you started. You will only complete what you started if you are daily examining your progress. If you are daily repenting after you examine your progress and you daily ask for heaven's help in strengthening your hand. A little over a hundred days. A little over a hundred days that you can mark on a calendar and know that it will change your eternal standing. Why wouldn't we do that? Why would we be willfully blind and claim that we can see every day for a little over a hundred days? Say, today, first and foremost, all I have, all that is, I will in my actions display belongs to you. My time, my children, my home, my spouse, my money, my efforts, all of it. And it will change your eternal standing because you'll get addicted to doing it. You will be always poor yet always rich. You will always be giving but never running out of heaven's resources. Your father will back you. The hour is late. The time is short. The clock is struck. If we don't do this now, do you really think it will get easier a year from now? No. Apathy, laziness, spiritual lethargy, it has a way of creeping up on you till you don't even know you're asleep in the whore's lap. And it takes the putting out of your eyes for you to be able to see that you've wasted your calling. But if we can wake up now, the Lord will stir us. The Lord will empower us. He will rekindle us again. And what we began in, he will multiply in us. And we will finish with excellence. A little over a hundred days. And that's not the only thing that God spoke through Haggai. Haggai chapter 2 verse 20 goes on to say, The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord and I will make you like my signet ring. For I have chosen Amen. you, yeah. declares the Lord Almighty. Saints, it's time to remember that Peter says, you are a holy and a chosen people, grafted into a holy and a chosen people. The same God of the Exodus will continue to deliver you from even the self-induced curses that you have brought on yourself since the days of your original deliverance. He shattered foreign kingdoms. He shattered chariots and horses to deliver you the first time. And he, God Almighty, will display the same power in your continual deliverance. Zerubbabel failed, but he was not a failure. Amen! He repented, and he was restored, guys. The same is true of Jeshua and the elders. They moved on and completed the work, and the same will be true for us as well. Yeah. 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 You know, Haggai was not the only prophet 
He worked with another prophet named Zechariah, and they had the same message with a slightly different approach. So we want to give you a sampling before moving on because some of you will need to hear it. This is Zechariah 2, picking up in verse 1. Then I looked up, and there before me was a man with a measuring line in his hand. I asked, where are you going? He asked me. He answered me, to measure Jerusalem, to find out how wide and how long it is. Then the angel who was speaking to me left, and another angel came to meet him and said, said to him, Run, tell that young man, Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of, because of the great number of men and livestock in it. And I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord, and I will be its glory within. You have to remember that Jerusalem had very few men involved in this project. And the city was presently completely without walls. Nehemiah has not arrived yet. And we are still in the first of the three returns here in Zechariah. Yet Zechariah is reminding them of what Jerusalem will be if they continue to place the sacred before their own security. Jerusalem will have walls but will not need them because the Lord will be a wall of fire around it. Amen. Zechariah goes on to remind them in chapter 2, verse 8, that they are still indeed the apple of his eye. We want to assure you that no failure on your part will make you a failure unless you give up. Yeah. Come on, That's church. A good word. There's a quote that we kick around from Winston Churchill that says, success is not final. Failure is not fatal. It's the courage to continue that matters. And that's what we want for everyone in this room tonight. If you will rekindle that fire that you began with. Amen. For many of us the day that you walk through the doors of this church. Then you can be sure that the Lord will meet you with holy fire. Because his eye is upon you. Amen. We're going to move to Zechariah 4 verse 1 now. Then the angel who talked with me returned and Waken me as a man is waking from his sleep. Come on. Look, I can testify tonight I am waking up to the reality of the kingdom. There have been many things I've been worried about, but there's only one thing that matters. He asked me, what do you see? I answered, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lights on it, with seven channels to the lights. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. I asked the angel who talked with me, What are these, my lord? He answered, Do you not know what these are? <laughs> no, my lord, I replied. Look, the God of all creation is tuning our vision in and he's causing us to feel our need to understand his vision. Yeah. What are you, oh my... Sorry. So he said to me, This is what the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. What are you, O mighty mountain, before Zerubbabel? You will become level ground. Amen. The prophetic vision that he's seeing relates to the work that we're reading about right now in Ezra. He says it will become level ground. Then he will bring out the capstone to shouts of God bless it, God bless it. Thanks, you remember, Zerubbabel sinned. He stalled and was in need of correction, much like me on a regular basis. But he was also still anointed for the task. Yeah. Amen. Just like you are, church. The same is true of Joshua the high priest and all of the elders. 
But they all, praise God, proved their repentance by going to do the work. Amen. The prophet encouraged them that no mountain of external opposition would prevail against them if they repented from their insidious internal deviation. When they got their internal right, there was nothing that would stand in their way. When you find yourself in sinful stagnation, and there yet remains hope for you, you repent and then begin to build. Amen. No weeping, no mourning, no grieving, grieving, but building. Can I share something with you? Yeah. The people of God are unstoppable by an outward resistance. We chew that stuff up and spit it out. The only real threat to us is inward resistance. Perhaps this is why the Apostle Paul wrote in his Philippian letter and said this phrase that's become common to us, but you didn't know the backdrop for it. Philippians 1.3, I thank my God every time I remember you. And all of my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul was a student of the Tanakh. And he knew the story that we are telling tonight better than any of us. The work of God faces many perils, and the most dangerous of them all is our own internal resistance and complacency. Nevertheless, he wrote, he who began the good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Amen. It seems quite obvious to me that he was reflecting on Ezra 5. The work that began in the spirit became stagnant. And yet that very same spirit stirred them again. Yeah. And the work was completed. Amen. This is our hope. And this is what we are really relying on. The same God who stirred you up the first time will stir you up as many times as it takes to finish the task. Amen. It will never be accomplished through your might. Never accomplished through your power. It will always take the Spirit of God just as Zechariah prophesied 2,542 years ago. By my Spirit, says the Lord. You know, Paul was not alone in these kinds of encouragements. The Lord's own brother said this in Jude 24. To him who is able to keep you from falling yes. and to present you before his glorious presence, without fault, yes, and with great joy. Show me some great joy! To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Church, the name of the Lord is over us, and we are working under his authority. The prophets of God are helping us right now. The Lord's eye is upon us, and we will stand in victory over the lifeless form of our own eternal enemies yeah. because yeah. he is able to present us to do so. Hallelujah. So with that in mind, let's return to Ezra. We're going to pick up in verse 9. Eight minutes and 57 seconds. We can do it. We questioned the elders and asked them, who authorized you to rebuild this temple and restore the structure? 
We also ask them their names, so that we can write down the names of the leaders for your information. This is the answer they gave us. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago. One at the that a, that a great king of Israel built and finished. Remember that the answer of the elders is being recorded by a Gentile administrator named Tatanat. He is conveying their responses in the letter to Darius here. Tatanai recorded how the elders identified themselves. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. Yes! Guys, much is cured in the life of a believer by fully embracing this same identity. Tonight, you're not an engineer. You're not a garbage man. You're not an attorney. You're not a mechanic. <laughs> you are a servant of the God of heaven and earth. Amen. That is your title. Wear it loud and proud. That's right. James 1.9 says, The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position. It's not proper for a servant of the God of heaven and earth to be falsely humble or descend into self-deprecation. We're actually commanded by the word of God to take pride in the high position that God has given us. When you learn to do this and fully embrace your identity in Christ, then you will feel heaven's authority working in you. And you will be a match for every form of opposition, whether it is external or internal. Continue in verse 12. But because our fathers anchored the God of heaven, he handed them over to Nebuchadnezzar, the Chaldean, king of Babylon, destroyed this temple and deported the people of Babylon. So notice the way the elders fully accepted all responsibility for the destruction of the temple. They said, because our fathers angered the God of heaven. That's what they said. They didn't blame shift or say, it was that bad Nebuchadnezzar. These elders accepted responsibility for being the cause of the destruction of the temple. If they hadn't, then it may have appeared as if the Babylonian gods were superior to, next, to Yahweh since the temple was destroyed. However, since they did, it, did this rightly, then it was clear that the destruction of the temple was solely the result of the sovereign god Yahweh, who was displeased with his own subjects. It is so important that we own up to our sin and the sin of our families. God is never to blame. And when the blame rightly rests on us, then our witness is intact. Amen. And our restoration is a testimony to the graciousness of God. Amen. Amen. We're moving to 13, but you need to hear what Peyton said. Your witness is intact when you give glory to the God, God for the judgment that has come upon you and your family. Simply saying nothing does not suffice. The elders testified to why... They were in exile, and that is why these persons can see he is the great God in Jerusalem. Go to verse 13. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, King Cyrus issued a decree to rebuild this house of God. Notice that just like in Ezra 6.22, which we have read to you, refers to Cyrus as the king of Assyria. This verse refers to Cyrus as the king of Babylon. This is because Cyrus was king over both regions. 
held supremacy all over all other lower monarchs. From the perspective of a Persian, Cyrus is king over every locality and also over all of the Persian Empire, which stretched across the known world. But Ezra's point in both chapter 6 and here in chapter 5 is that both regions that the captivity occurred where they were sent into exile was now ruled by Cyrus, whom Adonai had brought into power so that all 12 tribes, whether they were in Assyria or Babylon, could return from captivity when he gave this decree that they're referencing. Amen. You all still with us? You got another four minutes in you? Amen. Then let's pick up in the chapter. He even removed from the temple of Babylon the gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem and brought to the temple in Babylon. Then King Cyrus gave them to a man named Sheshbazar, whom he had appointed governor. I'm simply going to point out some fun things now. When Zerubbabel is being referred to in the Persian records, his name is Sheshbazar. Much like Daniel is referred to in the Babylonian records as Belteshazzar. You will remember that Tatanai said, give me the names of everybody who's building. But Zerubbabel only gave him one name. His. The one that the king knew him by. And the one that was recorded. This next slide is not one that I'm going to read to you, but it's in your notes for the purpose of illustrating that. Let's pick up in verse 15. And he told him, take these articles and go and deposit them in the temple in Jerusalem and rebuild the house of God on its site. Look, it's worth noting something. Those articles that Nebuchadnezzar took from Jerusalem, well, Nebuchadnezzar's victory was temporary. The spoils of it were returned. We are working for eternal treasures, yeah. ones that never spoil, never fade, that cannot perish or be returned to their original owners. They're ours. John 6.27 tells us not to work for food that spoils, but for food that endures unto eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him the Father has placed his seal of approval. Amen. Could we read verse 16? So this Shesbazar came laid the foundations of the house of God in Jerusalem. From that day to the present, it has been under construction, but it's not yet finished. Anybody who's been in the construction business understands what's happened. <laughs> the permitting process tends to get in the way. <laughs> what one official permits, the next permitting officer comes by and says, you can't do it. That's, that's what this whole story is about. But God overturned them all. Amen. Let's do verse 17. Now if it pleases the king, let a search be made in the royal archives of Babylon to see if, if King Cyrus did in fact issue a decree to rebuild this house of God in Jerusalem. Then let the king send us his decision in this matter. Amen. As we hand this meeting over to the pastors, we would be remiss if we didn't tell you that the king does search the archives and he issues a decree that is pleasing to everyone except Tatanai. <laughs> Not only will the Jews be found in the right, but Tatanai is going to have to pay their expenses. See, it doesn't always pay up to be on the opposing side of God, does it? It'll pay up for their benefit, but it won't pay up for you. Chapter 
church. These are special days and special times that we're in. See, I have a unique privilege of being one of your pastors, one of your shepherds, and getting to respond to a night like this right alongside it. I could have access to notes, but I don't take them because I don't want to be thinking about it. I want to feel what these men have already prepared. I have been tremendously, tremendously impacted by the Word of God tonight. I am not going to try to reteach you anything because what these men did stands by itself and it will stand for generations. I'm proud of these men. I'm proud of who they are and what they just did in my heart tonight. You've been stirred by God. You have to respond to a command within the Word that is more than human desire. You have to start at the altar. Your sacrifices have to be both morning and evening, perpetually and exclusively. You cannot have any other priority. That's how they started us tonight. When you found out that you've you've drifted, that you've had mission drift. Anybody along with me and you realize that there's been mission drift? Yeah, Yeah, I got both hands up. I need both of them. If Adonai was looking to kill you because of your mission drift, you'd have been dead many times over. My daughter leaned across. She said, I'd have been dead before we even had a chance to start. That's pretty good from a 12-year-old. He doesn't want to kill any of us. He wants to transform us. Amen. By the way, if you had noticed, I'm just quoting from these men directly. (coughs) If your heart is broken, then you won't be despised by the Lord. The only proper response is to show faith in that aspect of our great God's character and then immediately get to work. Church, what would happen if we meditated on this and did something about it every day from now until October when the One Association meeting is held? We want you to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. That can only happen if you and I complete what we've started and you can only complete what you've started if you are daily examining your progress repenting and asking for heaven's help in strengthening your hand this is the only part that I've written no mourning no weeping no self deprecation only being stirred by the spirit of the almighty God every day getting to work and completing the work that he's assigned. Stand to your feet with us. Uh, Let's take our stirred up souls and spirits. Lift our voice to heaven. Cry to our Father for the help that we need and thank him for the help we've already received. Mighty God, we thank you for your spirit that has stirred us up Set our priorities on you, your kingdom alone. Lord, continue to strengthen our hands. Help us continue to throw off that despair and that which hinders the progress of building. Lord, we thank you for giving us every tool that we need. And it's found only in you, Lord God. May our hands be diligent to the end and see the finishing of your work in our lives and this ministry. Lord, we thank you for our brothers. We thank you for this team that you have given us, this body of believers, that we will inspire one another 